Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. So Derek, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat today. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure, uh, good to be here. Uh, I'm Derek Eater. I am the founder of Chai Hack Night, a civic technology event that meets every week in the city of Chicago to uh, build, share, and learn about civic tech. Uh, and then I also am the founder and partner at Datamade, a civic technology consulting company, which was founded about three months after Chai Hack Night. Uh, 2012 was a busy year for me, uh, and uh, is a company of the size of about seven people now, and we do consulting work for government, academia, uh, nonprofits, uh, and journalists all around sort of civic tech uh, and using data to tell stories with uh, to tell stories with data. Uh, so I, uh, by day, uh, have started a business and do civic technology type work during day time hours. And then at nighttime, uh, I go spend my spare time, uh, which I have less of these days with two kids now, uh, doing uh, civic technology in a volunteer capacity through Chai Hack Night. Now, one of the things that's important as you go with any endeavor is that idea of considering why you're doing it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So what would you say is your personal why? You know, Why do you get out of bed sure. each morning and do what you do? So that's evolved, I'd say, over the years. In the beginning, the why was, oh, this is fun and new, and this data that wasn't there before is now there, and I can go do something interesting with it, and I can learn new skills as a technologist along the way. So it was very much around the idea of sort of self-fulfillment or self-actualization. Uh, which if anybody from Trihacknate and the leadership team is listening, they'll laugh at that because that's like a running joke about nobody knows what that means, but some people really like that phrase. Um, but I, I stand by it. Uh, it basically is the idea that, um, that, that people can, through this work, uh, sort of achieve greater understanding uh, and greater sets of skills to see the change in the world that they want. While that's sort of like where I started was very sort of self-driven, it was sort of a, a maybe selfish motivations to get into this stuff. Now that I've kind of gotten to the place that I'm in, where I, you know, again, own a business and I'm leading a very large and successful um, meetup, my goal is to help other people go through that same path and transformation that I went through. I think that there's a lot of power to be gained from leveraging technology and data. And if no one is really helping out um, folks that need that help, then the sort of default way for power to be um, actualized is going to continue to stratify who has that power. So the folks who already have the resources and have the time and have the money are going to gain more and benefit more from technology, whereas people who maybe don't have as much time or money, uh, maybe they don't even have access to internet, um, those folks are gonna fall further behind. And so I really see um, the work that I do, both at DataMate and at Chai Hack Night, as a way to help people who really need that extra boost and can and wanna use that power for, for benefiting 
broader society, and I see my role is is helping people do that uh, and do that successfully. Now, as you've mentioned there, you're now a founder a couple times over, both a business and a volunteer organization. Uh, but from what I gather, you started off your career on essentially a software development track. Could you talk a bit about your career journey going from that space to not kind of growing into something more kind of like a leadership-oriented position here? Yeah, so um, yeah, I went to school in St. Louis at Washington University and got a degree in computer engineering. Um, as of now, I am the only person at DataMade who has a computer science degree. Everybody at DataMade has other degrees like uh, sociology, and we have a music PhD, we have an art school dropout, we have some gender studies. Um, so uh, I have what you would probably call like a traditional um, like background in technology. Right after I came um, to Chicago, which I, I distantly came to Chicago after I graduated not knowing what I would do, um, I found uh, some jobs doing web development in the city. And I kind of gained the skills of being a consultant and also being a technologist and building websites um, over about like five or six years. And then around the time, like 2012, when there's this moment of uh, real change in the city, um, we had a new mayor, Mayor Emanuel, who's actually, he's now leaving. Um, so maybe this is the end of a certain chapter, but in the beginning of a new one. Uh, but at that time, it was this very exciting moment where all of a sudden, uh, all these folks who, and I was not really involved in the open government movement very keenly yet, um, I was, sort of in it, but not like that active. Um, There's this group of folks who were really um, interested in open government. It was all the folks who you know, founded every block, like Dan O'Neill and Joe Jamuska, who uh, at the time was at the Tribune uh, News Apps team, um, and folks like Harper Reed. They were all very much like, about trying to get government data released. And then all of a sudden when we got this new administration, that was all of a sudden very open to supporting that. It's sort of like the floodgates opened and folks like myself who really didn't like know anything about politics or know anything about local government but knew a thing or two about like data and websites were able to really like, capitalize on that and make something of interest using that data and so that was a pretty fortunate um, set of experiences that I was able to benefit from and eventually um, you know start very quickly after that start Chai Hack Night again did not start it with like the intention of it becoming the the huge uh, thing that it is now, the first Chai Hack Night was four people, and we were just trying to find a place to get some work done because we were spending all of our time outside of our nine to five jobs, uh, you know, and meeting at coffee shops and people's houses, and that was just getting annoying. So we decided to just meet at the same time in the same place every week, and so that was actually the reason for the first hack night. And we just got to doing it every week. And every time we did it, we continued to invite more people. And then people built stuff there, they wanted to present. And then we had, we decided to broaden the kinds of presenters that came. And it sort of just grew very organically. And so, I mean, just this last week, we had our 320th event. Before that, though, I was—I wouldn't consider myself like an expert or even proficient in running in a, running events. But if you do anything 320 times, or even 100 times, or 50 times, you're going to get pretty good, or at least proficient at that thing. And so, 
we had the opportunity in all these cases to get good at it um, by trying lots of times. And I think that's something that, you know, in the realm of software development, um, the, the idea of like fast iterations and agile development is something that might ring true to folks who are listening. Um, and I think that there's an aspect of that that's, uh, that's applicable here, that we were able to, by having TriHackNet be a weekly thing, not just a monthly thing, we were able to do it that many, four times as much, you know, as, as we would have otherwise. And so it gave us, again, it gave this, this sort of way we approached it and just sort of the stakes of which we came into it at, which I thought were pretty low, um, enabled us to learn um, and, and sort of develop those leadership skills. Now, before we get into some more serious topics, uh, I did some digging, and there's a couple of early tweets I want to ask you about. Oh, no. on question. <laughs> so the uh, your first tweet, which is always like the classic thing that I, I like to check out for folks, is That's your first funny. tweet is, just join Twitter. Now, after a little while after that, though, you kind of followed up with, with some more statements, one of them being a declaration that you were getting a G1 and saying farewell to Verizon. Ah, boy. So compound question. How's that Twitter thing working out? <laughs> and how was the G1? Was it a good device? You know, did it serve That's you so well? That's so funny. Okay, yeah. Um, so the, my very first tweet, I remember, um, I was volunteering for the Obama 08 uh, campaign, and uh, a couple of the folks that I was hanging out with at that office um, were like, you should join Twitter. So I did. Um, and I distinctly remember doing it there at the campaign office here in like downtown Chicago. Um, and then, yeah, I, uh, I remember when the G1 came out. I guess the iPhone was pretty new at that time. I think so. I think that was pretty but close But then too. Google responded like within a year or two with Android. Um, and the G1 was like the first Android phone. And I remember being like, oh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to be, you know, a, a supporter of the walled garden of Apple. Um, you know, I want I want Android because it's open source. Even though, like, realizing now that's like technically true, but also Google has its own walled garden, anyways. But I am still an Android user. I will say that, and I will say that I still miss the the flip out keyboard of the G1 mm-hmm. because I can still I could still type faster on that than I can on my current phone. Um, so uh, I, ha- I, I am still not with Verizon because they're terrible. I mean, they're, all the carriers are terrible. I, nobody likes their carrier. That's it, like yeah. a thing. <laughs> it seems a bit like a choose your poison kind of choice. Yeah, right, exactly. So, uh, man, I have never been challenged on my tweets before. I'm glad I had good answers. <laughs> <laughs> and I can, I can relate to you about the, the missing of features from like those early Android devices. I, for some reason, had this weird endearment with the, I think it was the Nexus One had that like little nub trackball thing. I remember that. That you could, yeah. if you rooted the phone, you could also like adjust the LED color outputs mm-hmm. on the RGB mm-hmm. and do like neat things and notifications yep. with it. And yep. now I have um, a blue RDH One, which is like literally a hundred dollars. Um, you can just like I think Amazon has a deal um, because I broke so many phones. I had a Nexus Four. I broke it within like a few months because mm-hmm. I don't know. I dropped it once and it just the screen was done. Um, so I, ironically, I've had a cheap phone expecting it to break, and I've had it for like over almost three years now. Um, so who knows? Maybe I just made it. Maybe I've stopped being so clumsy with my phone. But. <laughs> well, talk about besting expectations right there. Yeah. I, I would also be curious to get a little bit of a compare and contrast from you as far as what it's like to kind of use 
uh, to try to use like civic tech type skills in a campaign environment versus a governing mm. environment where you're trying to service a city government or oh, interesting. something that, like that. And when you say campaign, you mean like at the Obama campaign? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd say that my experience there, um, I'm not sure how much it influenced the kind of civic tech work I did. I know that I realized afterwards that I was like, did not really want to work in campaigns because it was like crazy hours. Like the moment when I like went to go in and like I took a day off from work to go volunteer for a day and I had to call in to get uh, access to the building from my contact there at the Obama campaign. Um, I, you know, I got there at like nine and I was like, hey, you know, I'm here, do you let me up? And the guy who let me in was like, oh yeah, uh, I, I just got up. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll give you time. He's like, no, no, I slept under my desk last night. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's what kind of thing is going. And this was like the January before. Like we were like 10 months out from the election or more. Um, and that's what it was like. So I was like, okay, maybe not the lifestyle I want. You know, my, my experience from that point and then going into doing the sort of uh, earlier websites like Chicago Lobbyists um, really always kind of came from the outsider perspective. And in many ways, that's kind of how I think Chai Hack Night positions itself, even to this day, as outside of government, which is something that I think is perhaps a bit different than a lot of other uh, civic technology groups. Um, it seems like more often than not, Code for America brigades are more aligned kind of with government and as part like treating government as a partner and while some of that does happen like now actually more than than it had before um, we've always kind of positioned ourselves as outsiders like we've never been sponsored by the government we've never really taken on projects at Chai Hack Night um, at least early on that were for government you know some of the more successful projects or high-profile projects that have come out of Chai Hack Night are um, in some ways antagonistic of government. Um, you know, My Building Doesn't Recycle is a really good example that Claire Micklin um, built. Uh, she didn't have recycling in her building and she wanted to know why. And so she did some research and found out that the city was supposed to be fining her landlord for not having a, a recycling receptacle. And so she saw a law and she's like, well, on the books, like this is already solved, but clearly the city's not even enforcing its own law. Mm -hmm. So how am I going to go and change that, right? It's not like I can just go and, um, you know, tell my landlord that they better do this or else they'll get fined because that just wasn't happening. So she set out at Chai Hack Night to build a tool to, so people could report that they were also experiencing this problem. Uh, and she got a, a, a group of developers together and built mybuildingdoesn'tRecycle.com. And it was a website that you could just type in an address and we'll comment and say, I don't have recycling here. And that yielded a map that uh, over, over the course of uh, several months, she got thousands of reports. And it, it was so much of a, uh, of a, a phenomenon that she got uh, a bunch of press about her, right? So like, the website was featured on WBZ and the Chicago Tribune and a number of other websites. And at that point, then all of a sudden, the government was paying attention because there was mm. a negative angle to it and they needed to respond to being criticized. And so the, the sort of end result of that is after all of that, after she got to that point where here you like here is a website that she and her team built and got the, the made the government honestly look bad. That was when she had leverage to actually 
do what she thought needed to be done, which is eventually they um, wrote a new ordinance uh, and passed it, and it went into effect in January of last year. Um, so I'd say that that's the kind of angle that I'd say um, is, a, is generally like a big part of the spirit of Chai Hack Night. That being said, folks in government have come and presented to Chai Hack Night. Folks in government have come and leveraged the sort of breakout group structure we have to work on projects. Um, I mean, Tom Shank is a, is a great example of someone who really um, figured out an awesome way to thread that, um, uh, sort of use sort of the inherent uh, uh, volunteer, spirit of volunteerism that exists in Chai Hack Night and leverage it for something like really positive for the people working on it, but also for the city. Um, I mean, they, um, uh, the Clearwater Project came out of that, um, which is uh, um, uh, a way for them to have a better model of when to close the beaches whenever there was uh, the water was unsafe. Um, and they were able to do that a couple of other different ways to get volunteers to help um, uh, you know, work on city projects. So it eventually did happen, but it actually took a little bit of time, I think, for both Tom and his team and Trihack Knight folks to figure out how to do that work because there's a lot of work that government just kind of can't take outside. You know, it's like sometimes it's got proprietary information, um, sometimes it's like just a sensitive subject. And so Tom, being part of Chai Hack Night um, for so long, knew kind of where to find, where that space was um, and was able to really do some cool projects with it. Um, but yeah, for a while it was like very, um, it was hard to find that out. And the easiest thing to do was just to sort of be clearly on the outside of, of government. And to give our listeners context, uh, uh, Tom Shank in this instance is the former chief data officer Correct. for the city of Chicago. And actually, if you'd like to hear uh, more from him, uh, he was gracious enough to be on episode two. So I would suggest after this, going and checking that out. Now, I, you mentioned there that at times the relationship with, say, like the, the government at the, at the city of Chicago level can be almost adversarial in nature, where you're applying some level of leverage or pressure. Mm -hmm. Would you say, is that the, the typical interaction? Does it usually require that press level intervention, or are there kind of shades in between, typically? Uh, there's shades in between. It depends. It depends on what you're trying to do. Um, there's plenty of projects that benefit government, um, and there's, there's plenty of projects that, um, after you do them, the government looks good in the end, right? I mean, I think a project that we did early on um, Clear Streets, which uh, tracks the snow plows every winter. That was an example of a project where the city released a tool that called Plow Tracker that lets you see where the plows are deployed whenever it snows. So they got about 300 plows and they essentially, uh, you know, usually while you're sleeping, go out and plow the streets. It's kind of amazing. Um, people in Chicago, I think, unfairly criticize um, those plow drivers. Like, mm. people will see that one of them, like, maybe pulled over to the side of the road, maybe one of them, like, went into McDonald's or something. And there's a sort of, like, cynical attitude that I've observed that a lot of people have, thinking that the government just isn't doing its basic job and that these plow drivers are lazy or something. And that, compounded with the fact that um, the city has had legitimate problems clearing the snow in past decades. Um, I mean, Mayor Belandic lost to, to Jane Byrne uh, 
who became the first female mayor of Chicago because the Bolandic administration like literally screwed up clearing the snow. Mm. Um, and so there's like a real history to that that like combined with people's like stereotypes about government and misconceptions about government like makes it like kind of a thing. So when we um, built the Clear Streets, and this is actually a project, the first project I worked on with Forrest Gregg, who's my partner at DataMate now, um, our goal was to just answer that basic question. Is like, is, the, is there like equity when it comes to how the city plows the streets? Are they actually doing like what they say they're doing? And we found that like after launching it, it that was true. Um, in the process of like making this app, it's also like a useful fun tool to look at because we scrape the plow locations in real time and then map them to the street grid. So you can see as the streets are being plowed, the, the lines are drawn. So it's kind of like Tron, I guess, if you've ever played the, <laughs> like the light cycle game where the plows are like literally like leaving trails behind them. And so um, it was like a very popular app because people were like, really, this is exciting to see. But then we also looked at the aftermath of it and found that, oh yeah, like the, the city actually did do a very good job covering the, the areas of the city. Um, and so uh, in that case, I think that it made the city look good um, because here they were actually doing what they uh, said they were doing um, and, and sort of dispelling that, that myth, or at least what I saw as like a common, like a common myth that people, common misperception people had. Um, later on, we found that there were actual local examples of things not going quite according to plan, um, which is actually like I think a great story of just how government kind of works in general like overall all the pieces like make sense like the overall scheme of how the city plows streets is like they're doing a good job but then at the local level um, sometimes you have streets that get skipped and there's reasons for that and so there was a a block on the uh, north side of uh, Chicago I think 37th Ward and they um, one thing that happens when you run a website is uh, with government data on it is that people um, will mistake you for being the government and so or at least think you're somehow connected to them so we got an email from someone saying hey you know our street has been plowed can you like do something about it and we had to respond like no we can show you the data about where they are but we have no like all you can really do is like call your alderman or call 311 or something like that uh, and they had already tried their alderman they had already tried the city and eventually, after a while, they just called the local NBC affiliate and asked them to look into it. And so then we got another email about a couple weeks later from someone from NBC Investigates, and they asked us, hey, you know, we're going to do a story, we think. We want to see what's going on with this block. Could you corroborate the, that, like what they're saying with data? And we could, because we had that data. We'd scraped mm -hmm. all the data. And so I did that analysis for them and found that no plows ever went down their street. And the segment aired, and it was very popular. And lo and behold, the next day, their street got plowed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like that was effective. <laughs> it was effective, right? Um, but I mean, sometimes that's what it takes, right? And then actually, the next winter, the opposite happened, where there's a very powerful alderman in Chicago, Mayor, uh, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, Ed Burke, who's, I may, I may as well call him there, because he's like, he's been in office for 50 years, and he is like the, by far, the most powerful, like, member of Chicago City Council, he like sets the legislative agenda for many things. 
Um, and he lives on a dead-end one-way street on the mm. southwest side of the city. And um, there was complaints from neighbors that his street was getting plowed before everybody else's. And we found out that, event, that uh, his street was, in fact, getting plowed ahead of all these other side streets. And we, we partnered with Dan Milopoulos from the Sun-Times who went down and corroborated and then got his hands on what they called the plow book, which is like the master plan of like where the plows should all go. And then found that uh, th somehow that dead end one way street had been listed as a main arterial. Interesting. And ended up publishing, a, I think a cover story on the Sun-Times, like saying that, you know, Ed Burke got his street plowed five times before anybody else did. And then uh, it snowed again, like a week later, and then we checked again, and he did it again. And then they had another cover page story. Um, I think that one, one, the title was, He Has Snow Shame. <laughs> uh, and then I think eventually he, I don't know if he stopped, but it did trigger an uh, investigation from the city inspector general, and they did eventually get it like changed. But it took like that kind of effort. So, I the story with Clear Streets is that like I think is again like a microcosm for I think a lot of things going on in government is that like overall things are working, but then there's certain cases where at the local level like some weird like you know influence or weird kinds of of bureaucratic circumstance can mean that things don't quite work as po as they properly do. Um, but the cool thing about what we had with Clear Streets is we had all the data. So we could show both that macro view and zoom in to a very local level and see the micro view of what was going on at the block level, which I don't know, I think is actually something that like, is, is, it tells what I have observed over the years is like a pretty true story about what's going on with government. Now, related to this, and that, you know, that relationship again with government, I would imagine at times that whether it's through projects or initiatives that, you know, your organization might have an opinion on that at times that kind of becomes a form of lobbying. Uh, mm -hmm. as I, think, I think you alluded to this a bit with some of the open data initiative stuff mm -hmm. that you were witnessing uh, out there. Uh, do you think that uh, kind of the ad advocacy activity or that lobbying activity uh, has a place in kind of that broader civic tech movement? Oh yeah, on? I mean, it has to. I mean, otherwise, what do you, what do you stand for? <laughs> um, they, you know, at Chai Hack Night, we have um, uh, found, I think, what is a good and effective place to be at, which is we're not partisan. We don't endorse candidates. We don't endorse political parties. But we do, I mean, we do, and it's set, we say this all the time, we care about transparency, accountability, and open data, and good governance. And so if we're not pushing for those things with the leverage that we have, then that's an opportunity missed. Um, and who, else, who better to do it than us? Because this is like literally what we care about. It's like, like one of the main reasons we all get together every week. So that's something that we've done in the last uh, couple of years, in fact, is uh, it started with the state's attorney, um, Cook County state's attorney, uh, an open data pledge, just uh, and it's just a document that we send out, sent out to every candidate, saying that if elected, will you support transparency and open data? And we have some specific asks because um, we saw um, that as a, as an opportunity because there's that's an office. The state's attorney's office was traditionally very closed off, um, and 
we learned through observing over the years that like a great time to push for something is around election time, right? Uh, I mean, that is, again, like why the city of Chicago got open data in the first place was because the right people got to the Emanuel transition team at the right time. And, and also, I think he was influenced by being in the Obama administration, which also spearheaded data.gov. Um, uh, that ch like moment of change was a great opportunity that people seized on. And that's why we have the open data portal we have. That's why you know, Tom Shank got to be chief data officer, is because that, the right argument was made to the right people at the right time. And so seeing that as a, as a mechanism for enacting the change we want to see, uh, we've done those open data pledges now for um, the governor. So uh, we, we have a uh, governor's race coming up pretty soon, and uh, J.B. Pritzker has signed our pledge, as did three other Democratic candidates for governor. Um, I really tried hard to get Rounders people to sign it, and I know they saw it, but they didn't <laughs> sign it. Um, so they have, as of this moment, not signed it. Don't think they will before November. Um, and then we're, we're going to do another one for the mayor, uh, the mayoral race in February, because again, there's another opportunity to expand the kinds of open data that are available. So, um, yeah, I think that again, it, we come at this from an outsider's perspective, um, and I think that it's an important lever for us to 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 be pulling if we actually care about these things. An oft-mentioned project that uh, is a data-made project that I've heard about here and there is uh, Councilmatic. And oh, I believe yeah. you mentioned it earlier in our conversation briefly. Uh, could you give us a, a high-level view of it? Uh, it's something that as I've explored, I've, I found I'm a pretty big fan of myself. Oh, awesome. That's great to hear. Uh, Councilmatic is a website that lets you track what city council is up to. It is all of the council members and the meetings that they hold and the bills they sponsor and vote on. And it is something that actually has a long lineage in the civic tech and even before it, OpenGov or Gov 2.0 space. It actually originated in a two places. One was Open States, which is a Sunlight Foundation project where it was actually an amazing and ambitious project. It's still around. Uh, it's not like Sunlight has like sort of jettisoned it and it is now being maintained by some of the original um, builders of it in a more um, volunteer capacity. But it was an, as a project to go and scrape the state legislatures for every state. And every single state legislature has its own terrible website that basically posts the same information, like who are the members of the body and what do they vote on and, and all that kind of stuff. So they built open states and after going through and building a 50 state tool and all the scrapers that were required of that. Sunlight, in partnership with a couple other organizations, developed a, um, a platform and a standard known as Open Civic Data as a way to model legislative bodies. Not just at the state level, but actually all the way down to the local level. Down to mm -hmm. like, you know, this board of a mosquito abatement district or whatever, right? Um, and it was amazing because they, they took all that knowledge that they had in, um, in, in sort of doing it the hard way and, 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 and baking that into this very like robust, uh, somewhat complicated structure. 
Um, so that's one half of it. The other half actually came from a Code for America project. I think the first year of Fellows, 2011, um, Poe uh, built the original Councilmatic for Philadelphia, which is actually still up. It's like philly.councilmatic.org. And uh, it was a Django project, and our sort of original idea behind Chicago Councilmatic was to um, we really wanted to do something with legislative data, and by we, I mean me and Forrest, Greg. And so we were like, well, on the way to doing something interesting with that data, since we have to get that data anyways, we might as well just fork this uh, project from Code for America in Philly and just uh, and set it up in Chicago. Um, that ended up taking six months <laughs> <laughs> because it was very complicated and it was both, I think, Jumbe's first Django project and my first Django project. So there was a lot of learning the hard way. We eventually launched an early version of Councilmatic and it kind of worked. And then a couple of years later, we ended up getting a grant from the Summit Foundation to then set up Councilmatic and rebuild it using this open data, uh, open civic data framework. And so that's what we have now. And Councilmatic in Chicago has been up for several years now. We have a version of it that the city of New York has adopted officially. Um, they pay for it. And we also have a, a version of it set up in Los Angeles for the LA Metro board. Hmm. Um, and it's essentially a very, it's a very powerful platform because we, because we have open civic data, we can take the same stack and pretty easily set it up in another city as, and, and as long as we can pull the data into open, the open civic data format. So again, like Sunlight Foundation Labs really um, are amazing in that they came up with this sort of very robust, very um, intelligent data standard, uh, which enables something like Councilmatic to happen. Um, and I say that because that's usually not how it goes. That's usually like data standards are like not thought of in that way um, by a lot of folks, but it really is the thing that makes it possible for it to, to work the way it does. Um, so yeah, in Chicago, we you know you can you can get an email alert whenever there's um, a bill that has any keyword that you can subscribe to. You can get subscriptions to council meetings or committee meetings or or track your alderman. Um, actually, surprisingly, one of the most popular features on Chicago Councilmatic is the alderman lookup. Um, uh, just because you can type in an address and find out who your alderman is very quickly, and it's like surprisingly hard to do that on the city clerk's website. <laughs> yes, the the, the, uh, the user experience of using Councilmatic is uh, leaps and bounds better than that than that website. Yeah, and that's in itself a whole class of sort of civic app, right? Which I, has, I haven't really talked too much about yet. Which is taking an existing uh, government data or government function and then just like doing it better, um, and. It takes a certain level of commitment from the people doing this and a certain level of badness on the part of the government website mm -hmm. for it to like make sense to do it. But there's certainly a number of opportunities out there for taking a bad government process and making it good or better. Um, and that's what Councilmatic is. Hmm. So since we're talking about city council, uh, there's another project that I have a kind of simple question to ask you about. Do you... Uh, do you partake in the uh, the fantasy civics app? Do you play? I it? have. Uh, I haven't played it in a while, but yeah, when Vinish uh, set that up the first time, I think I got in the round I was playing in. I think I got second place. Oh, impressive! Yeah, I thought I I, I forget who won. Somebody got, you know, I knew that um, 
Alderman Burke was going to be a good one because that guy likes to introduce a lot of honorary resolutions. By the way, that's like a fun thing that city council does. A fun slash pointless thing is they love to give out honorifics, which is just basically the city council likes to recognize such and such a street as this honorary street or such and such a person for a lifetime of service. Um, they also have things that are like weird, like so-and-so's daughter for getting like straight A's on her math tests or something like that. Um, they produce a lot of honorifics. Um, and then the other big point getter would be Brendan Riley, who's the downtown alderman, because there's just so many businesses. And another fun thing about city council is aldermen are dealing with the minutia of, uh, of street awnings and zoning changes and small claims that all passes through city council and are technically sponsored by that alderman. Um, so that's how you rack up the points in Fantasy Civics, which uh, is a pretty fun game. Have you talked to Vinish before? I haven't. You uh, should. He's awesome. You should get him on here to talk about that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. that it is uh, a fascinating yeah. app. I mean, to take City Council, and it was powered by Councilmatic, the data, um, to take it and make basically like a fantasy football um, style game on top of what's going on in City Council, I thought it was just like a very clever way of getting people to engage in something that is both important but mundane, right? Like, I'm as, I'm as guilty of this as the next person, but like I just get sucked into national politics. I mean, it's like, you know, it's hard to turn away from the dumpster fire that's happening right now. But um, uh, it's also simultaneously very paralyzing because you know you have no power. You know you have no influence or no way to affect change in Washington, D.C. At least I feel that way. I think most people feel that way. But at the same time, the most important things that are happening to you personally are actually happening at the local level. Like your alderman and your mayor and your, you know, whoever represents you on the, at the county level and your governor of your state and your state legislature state legislators, even though you have no idea what their name is, they have actually quite a lot of power over what your day-to-day -day life looks like. And you, on the other hand, have a lot of power over them because just so few people pay attention and so few people vote in those local elections that, that, that you know, one person actually makes a huge difference. So. I'm very much a proponent of, and again, another reason why we built Councilmatic, making that more accessible, right? And I think there's a lot more that we could do with Councilmatic to make it even better, but I was just so amazed with um, uh, the effort and the execution of the Fantasy Civics project that Vinesh did, because it really does achieve that goal, right? Um, and it's silly, like you can kind of like look at it and dismiss it as a silly little app, but it's also like kind of amazing that you can actually get someone to pay attention to who you, you like. It might even make you go find out who your alderman is finally, uh, which is like most people, even that come to Chai Hack Night, don't even know who their alderman is. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think ironically, the uh, you know you're describing that trend of like the folks that are closer to you, yeah. as far as uh, levels of government, the ones that impact you the most, but also tends to be the level where it's like hardest to figure out what's going on without tools like like Councilmatic. So I think that's important that those things are available. So Eric, again, thank you for being on the program. Uh, before we conclude here, uh, as always, we like to give the guests the opportunity to have the last word. The last word. 
So are there any concluding thoughts you'd like to leave us with here in the audience? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think since this is kind of a unique opportunity to reach out to folks uh, in the broader civic tech space, I, I've always kind of been somewhat connected to that space, but I've always, like, my heart's always been in, in the work that we do here in Chicago. Um, I guess I'd just like to say that it, it seems to me that the civic technology wave that happened and really sort of peaked, I want to say, around 2014, 2015, um, has crashed, and that there was this huge, seemed like this huge um, amount of effort and, and peer groups like Code for America and the Sunlight Foundation um, and, you know, a few other groups as well, like Open Plans, that um, really changed, I think, actually, in the last, since, since then. Um, I think it seems to me that, like, a lot of funders have moved on to other things and that... You know, I think this is especially, it's been something I've observed for a while. And it's also something that um, really kind of, the point was really clearly made when I read the More Than Code report. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Um, it's morethancode.cc. It's, it's um, uh, like basically a field scan for the sort of technology just and justice um, space, which the folks who did the research included civic tech in that, but it also included like community tech and, and tech for social justice um, and a bunch of other sort of areas or nonprofit areas or industries that maybe folks in civic tech might not even think about or know about. Um, but they included civic tech in all of that. And I think that after reading that report, it really kind of made me realize, um, probably for the, yeah, for the first time in a really pointed way, that. Um, yes, sort of like I think the big wave of, of civic tech that I have like seen um, and known to define uh, like in the sort of way that I've been brought up as sort of starting Chai Hack Night and starting DataMate in this space, that that's kind of like crashed and is still around but sort of like fizzling out. But in the sort of aftermath of that, seeing that there are so many other groups outside of civic tech that do a lot of the same things that we do and care about a lot of the same things we do um, and that we haven't really f been connected to them. So I am we're very much, this is something we're talking about at DataMade, something that um, we're talking more about at Chai Hack Night. Um, I think I'm at the point now where I think that it's okay to let go of that initial kind of group of civic tech um, folks, not that we're not gonna like still be in touch, but I think that there's a lot more to go see in the world and groups to meet and groups to talk to and groups to learn from and partner with that we're gonna benefit from much more. Um, you know, I also think a lot about the really awful revelations that came out earlier this year around Clay Johnson and the, uh, the Me Too of civic tech. And if you haven't read that, you should because it's real and it's happening. And there's some real terrible stories there, but there's also some very brave people who have spoken out about that. And I think about the kind of that rotten part of civic tech and the need to really face it. And I feel that the folks who are in charge of the civic tech space right now are not facing it. 
and I'm actually looking towards other other folks to, to take that leadership position. And I'm doing what I can, you know, again, as like a white guy running a civic tech organization to, uh, to do my part in helping to support the people that I think need to be supported and to sit back and listen and try to learn more about how we can make our space more equitable. Um, I think we'd pay a lot of lip service to transparency and accountability, but I think that um, a lot of organizations in civic tech do not practice them. And that's something that I think I, I'm actively taking steps to do with Chai Hack Night um, and, and with DataMade. Uh, and it's something that, I know, I, again, I'm going to be focusing on and learning more about doing better. Um, and I'm doing that outside of the civic tech sphere um, because there's just, I think, not enough experience or knowledge in our own space to do that. So it's, um, I don't know, maybe that's a somber note to go out on. But that's kind of where my mind's at. And I figured I wanted to share that with folks. I agree. I think that's something that will give us a lot to pause and, and give thought to. But again, Derek, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at civictechchat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat. Or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.